Section three of Micrographia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Micrographia by Robert Hooke. Section two. Preface. Part two. Toward the prosecution of this method in physical inquiries, I have here and there gleaned up a handful of observations in the collection of most of which I made use of microscopes and some other glasses and instruments that improve the sense. Which way I have herein taken, not that there are not multitudes of useful and pleasant observables, yet uncollected, obvious enough without the helps of art, but only to promote the use of mechanical helps for the senses, both in the surveying the already visible world and for the discovery of many others hitherto unknown, and to make us with the great conqueror to be affected that we have not yet overcome one world when there are so many others to be discovered, every considerable improvement of telescopes or microscopes producing new worlds and terra incognitas to our view. The glasses I used were of our English make, but though very good of the kind, yet far short of what might be expected, could we once find a way of making glasses elliptical, or of some more true shape. For though both microscopes and telescopes, as they now are, will magnify an object about a thousand times bigger than it appears to the naked eye, yet the apertures of the object glasses are so very small that very few rays are admitted, and even of those few there are so many false that the object appears dark and indistinct. And indeed these inconveniences are such as seem inseparable from spherical glasses, even when most exactly made. But the way we have hitherto made use of for that purpose is so imperfect that there may be perhaps ten wrought before one be made tolerably good, and most of those ten perhaps every one differing in goodness one from another, which is an argument that the way hitherto used is at least very uncertain. So that these glasses have a double defect, the one that very few of them are exactly true wrought, the other that even of those that are best among them none will admit a sufficient number of rays to magnify the object beyond a determinate bigness against which inconveniences the only remedies i have hitherto met with are these first for microscopes where the object we view is near and within our power the best way of making it appear bright in the glass is to cast a great quantity of light on it by means of convex glasses for thereby though the aperture be very small yet there will throng in through it such multitudes that an object will by this means endure to be magnified as much again as it would be without it. The way for doing which is this. I make choice of some room that has only one window open to the south, and at about three or four foot distance from this window on a table, I place my microscope, and then so place either a round globe of water, or a very deep clear plano convex glass, whose convex side is turned towards the window that there is a great quantity of rays collected and thrown upon the object. Or if the sun shine, I place a small piece of oily paper very near the object, between that and the light. Then with a good large burning glass I so collect and throw the rays on the paper, that there may be a very great quantity of light passed through it to the object. Yet I so proportion that light that it may not singe or burn the paper. Instead of which paper there may be made use of a small piece of looking-glass plate one of whose sides is made rough by being rubbed on a flat tool with very fine sand. This will, if the heat be leisurely cast on it, endure a much greater degree of heat and consequently very much augment a convenient light. 
by all which means the light of the sun or of a window may be so cast on an object as to make it twice as light as it would otherwise be without it and that without any inconvenience of glaring which the immediate light of the sun is very apt to create in most objects for by this means the light is so equally diffused that all parts are alike enlightened but when the immediate light of the sun falls on it the reflections from some few parts are so vivid that they drown the appearance of all the other and are themselves also by reason of the inequality of light indistinct and appear only radiant spots but because the light of the sun and also that of a window is in continual variation and so many objects cannot be viewed long enough by them to be thoroughly examined besides that oftentimes the weather is so dark and cloudy that for many days together nothing can be viewed and because also there are many objects to be met with in the night which cannot so conveniently be kept perhaps till the day therefore to procure and cast a sufficient quantity of light on an object in the night i thought of and often used this expedient i procured me a small pedestal such as is described in the fifth figure of the first scheme on the small pillar a b of which were two movable arms c d which by means of the screws e f i could fix in any part of the pillar on the undermost of these i placed a pretty large globe of glass g filled with exceedingly clear brine stopped inverted and fixed in the manner visible in the figure out of the side of which arm proceeded another arm h with many joints to the end of which was fastened a deep plain convex glass i which by means of this arm could be moved to and fro and fixed in any posture on the upper arm was placed a small lamp k which could be to moved upon the end of the arm as to be set in a fixed posture to give light through the ball by means of this instrument duly placed as is expressed in the figure with the small flame of a lamp may be cast as great and convenient a light on the object as it will well endure and being always constant and to be had at any time i found most proper for drawing the representations of those small objects i had occasion to observe none of all which ways though much beyond any other hitherto made use of by any i know do afford a sufficient help but after a certain degree of magnifying they leave us again in the lurch hence it were very desirable that some way were thought of for making the object-glass of such a figure as would conveniently bear a large aperture as for telescopes the only improvement they seem capable of is the increasing of their length for the object being remote there is no thought of giving it a greater light than it has and therefore to augment the aperture the glass must be ground of a very large sphere for by that means the longer the glass be the bigger aperture will it bear if the glasses be of an equal goodness in their kind therefore a six will endure a much larger aperture than a three-foot glass and a sixty-foot glass will proportionally bear a greater aperture than a thirty and will as much excel it also as a six-foot does a three-foot as i have experimentally observed in one of that length made by mr richard reeves here at london which will bear an aperture above three inches over and yet make the object proportionally big and distinct whereas there are very few thirty-foot glasses that will endure an aperture of more than two inches over so that for telescopes supposing we had a very ready way of making their object glasses of exactly spherical surfaces we might by increasing the length of the glass magnify the object to any assignable bigness and for performing both these i cannot imagine any way more easy and more exact than by this following engine by means of which any glasses of what length soever may be speedily made it seems the most easy because with one and the same tool may be with care ground an object glass of any length or breadth requisite 
and that with very little or no trouble in fitting the engine, and without much skill in the grinder. It seems to be the most exact, for to the very last stroke the glass does regulate and rectify the tool to its exact figure, and the longer or more the tool and glass are wrought together, the more exact will both of them be of the desired figure. Further, the motions of the glass and tool do so cross each other that there is not one point of either surface, but as thousands of cross motions thwarting it, so that there can be no kind of rings or gutters made either in the tool or glass. The contrivance of the engine is only to make the ends of two large mandrels so to move that the centers of them may be at any convenient distance asunder, and that the axis of the mandrels lying both in the same plane produced may meet each other in any assignable angle, both which requisites may be very well performed by the engine described in the third figure of the first scheme where A-B signifies the beam of a lath fixed perpendicularly or horizontally C-D, the two poppet heads fixed at about two-foot distance, E-F, an iron mandrel whose tapering neck F runs in an adapted tapering brass collar, the other end E runs on the point of a screw G, in a convenient place of this is fastened H, a pulley wheel, and into the end of it that comes through the poppet head C is screwed a ring of a hollow cylinder K, or some other conveniently shaped tool, of what wideness shall be thought most proper for the size of glasses, about which it is to be employed. As for object glasses, between twelve foot and an hundred foot long, the ring may be about six inches over, or indeed somewhat more for those longer glasses. It would be convenient also, and not very chargeable, to have four or five several tools, as one for all glasses between an inch and a foot, one for all glasses between a foot and ten foot long, and another for all between ten and a hundred, a fourth for all between a hundred and a thousand foot long, and if curiosity shall ever proceed so far, one for all lengths between a thousand and ten thousand foot long. For indeed the principle is such that supposing the mandrels well made and of a good length, and supposing great care be used in working and polishing them, I see no reason but that a glass of a thousand, nay of ten thousand foot long, may be as well made as one of ten. For the reason is the same, supposing the mandrels and tools be made sufficiently strong, so that they cannot bend, and supposing the glass out of which they are wrought to be capable of so great a regularity in its parts as to refraction, this hollow cylinder K is to contain the sand, and by being drove round very quick to and fro by means of a small wheel which may be moved with one's foot, serves to grind the glass. The other mandrel is shaped like this, but it has an even neck instead of a taper one, and runs in a collar that by the help of a screw and a joint made like M in the figure, it can still be adjusted to the wearing or wasting neck. Into the end of this mandrel is screwed a chalk, N, on which with cement or glue is fastened the piece of glass Q that is to be formed, the middle of which glass is to be placed just on the edge of the ring and the lath OP is to be set and fixed by means of certain pieces and screws the manner whereof will be sufficiently evidenced by the figure, in such an angle as is requisite to the forming of such a sphere as the glass is designed to be of, the geometrical ground of which being sufficiently plain though not heated before, I shall for brevity's sake pass over. This last mandrel to be made by means of the former or some other wheel to run round very swift also by which two cross motions the glass cannot choose if care be used but be wrought into a most exactly spherical surface. But because we are certain from the laws of refraction which I have experimentally found to be so by an instrument I shall presently describe 
that the lines of the angles of incidence are proportionate to the lines of the angles of refraction. Therefore, if glasses could be made of those kind of figures or some other, such as the most incomparable Descartes has invented and demonstrated in his philosophical and mathematical works, we might hope for a much greater perfection of optics than can be rationally expected from spherical ones. For though Caeteris Peribus, we find that the larger the telescope object glasses are and the shorter those of the microscope, the better they magnify, yet both of them, besides such determinate dimensions, are by certain inconveniences rendered unuseful. For it will be exceedingly difficult to make and manage a tube above an hundred foot long, and it will be as difficult to enlighten an object less than an hundred part of an inch distant from the object glass. I have not as yet made any attempts of that kind, though I know two or three ways which, as far as I have yet considered, seem very probable and may invite me to make a trial as soon as I have an opportunity, of which I may hereafter perhaps acquaint the world. In the interim I shall describe the instrument I even now mentioned, by which the refraction of all kinds of liquors may be most exactly measured, thereby to give the curious an opportunity of making what further trials of that kind they shall think requisite to any of their intended trials and to let them see that the laws of refraction are not only notional. The instrument consisted of five rulers, or long pieces, placed together after the manner expressed in the second figure of the first scheme, where AB denotes a straight piece of wood about six foot and two inches long, about three inches over, and an inch and a half thick, on the back side of which was hung a small plummet by a line stretched from top to bottom, by which this piece was set exactly upright, and so very firmly fixed that in the middle of this was made a hole or center into which one end of a hollow cylindrical brass box cc fashioned as i shall by and by describe was placed and could very easily and truly be moved to and fro the other end of this box being put into and moving in a hole made in a small arm dd into this box was fastened a long ruler ef about three foot and three or four inches long and at three foot from the above mentioned centers pp was a hole e cut through and crossed with two small threads and at the end of it was fixed a small sight g and on the back side of it was fixed a small arm h with a screw to fix it in any place on the ruler l m this ruler l m was moved on the center b which was exactly three foot distance from the middle center p and a line drawn through the middle of it l m was divided by a line of cords into some sixty degrees and each degree was subdivided into minutes so that putting the cross of the threads in E upon any part of this divided line, I presently knew what angle the two rules AB and EF made with each other, and by turning the screw in H I could fix them in any position. The other ruler, also RS, was made much after the same manner, only it was not fixed to the hollow cylindrical box, but by means of two small brass arms or ears it moved on the centers of it this also by means of the cross threads in the hole s and by a screw in k could be fastened on any division of another line of cords of the same radius drawn on n o and so by that means the angle made by the two rulers a b and r s was also known the brass box c c in the middle was shaped very much like the figure x that is it was a cylindrical box stopped close at either end off of which a part both of the sides and bottoms was cut out so that the box, when the pipe and that was joined to it, would contain the water when filled half full, and would likewise, without running over, endure to be inclined to an angle equal to that of the greatest refraction of water, and no more, without running over. 
The ruler EF was fixed very fast to the pipe V, so that the pipe V directed the length of the ruler EF, and the box and ruler were moved on the pin TT so as to make any desirable angle with the ruler AB. The bottom of this pipe V was stopped with a small piece of exactly plain glass which was placed exactly perpendicular to the line of direction or access of the ruler EF. The pins, also TT, were drilled with small holes through the axis and through those holes was stretched and fastened a small wire. There was likewise a small pipe of tin loosely put on upon the end of V, and reaching down to the side of G, the use of which was only to keep any false rays of light from passing through the bottom of V, and only admitting such to pass as pierced through the sight G, all things being placed together in the manner described in the figure. That is, the ruler AB being fixed perpendicular, I filled the box CC with water, or any other liquor, whose refraction I intended to try till the wire passing through the middle of it were just covered. Then I moved and fixed the ruler FE at any assignable angle, and placed the flame of a candle just against the sight G and looking through the side I moved the ruler RS to and fro till I perceived the light passing through G to be covered, as twere, or divided by the dark wire passing through PP. Then turning the screw in K I fixed it in that posture, and through the whole S I observed what degree and part of it was cut by the cross threads in S, and this gave me the angle of inclination, APS answering to the angle of refraction BPE for the surface of the liquor in the box will be always horizontal and consequently AB will be a perpendicular to it. The angle therefore APS will measure or be the angle of inclination in the liquor. Next EPB must be the angle of refraction. For the ray that passes through the site G passes also perpendicularly through the glass diaphragm at F and consequently also perpendicularly through the lower surface of the liquor contiguous to the glass and therefore suffers no refraction till it meet with the horizontal surface of the liquor in CC, which is determined by the two angles. By means of this instrument I can with little trouble and a very small quantity of any liquor examine most accurately the refraction of it not only for one inclination but for all, and thereby am enabled to make very accurate tables, several of which I have also experimentally made and find that oil of turpentine is a much greater refraction than spirit of wine, though it be lighter and that spirit of wine has a greater refraction than water, though it be lighter also. But that salt water also has a greater refraction than fresh, though it be heavier. But alum water has a less refraction than common water, though heavier also. So that it seems as to the refraction made in a liquor the specific gravity is of no efficacy. By this I have also found that look what proportion the sign of the angle of the one inclination has to the sign of the angle of refraction correspondent to it the same proportion have all the signs of other inclinations to the signs of their appropriate refractions. My way for measuring how much a glass magnifies an object placed at a convenient distance from my eye is this. Having rectified the microscope to see the desired object through it very distinctly, at the same time that I look upon the object through the glass with one eye, I look upon other objects at the same distance with my other bare eye by which means I am able by the help of a ruler divided into inches and small parts and laid on the pedestal of the microscope to cast as it were the magnified appearance of the object upon the ruler and thereby exactly to measure the diameter it appears of through the glass which being compared with the diameter it appears of to the naked eye will easily afford the quantity of its magnifying. 
The microscope which for the most part I made use of was shaped much like that in the sixth figure of the first scheme, the tube being for the most part not above six or seven inches long, though by reason it had four drawers it could very much be lengthened as occasion required. This was contrived with three glasses, a small object glass at A, a thinner eye glass about B, and a very deep one about C. This I made use of only when I had occasion to see much of an object at once, the middle glass conveying a very great company of radiating pencils, which would go another way and throwing them upon the deep eyeglass. But whenever I had occasion to examine the small parts of a body more accurately, I took out the middle glass and only made use of one eyeglass with the object glass, for always the fewer the refractions are the more bright and clear the object appears. And therefore, tis not to be doubted, but could we make a microscope to have only one refraction, it would, caeteris paribus, far excel any other that had a greater number. And hence it is that if you take a very clear piece of a broken Venice glass, and in a lamp draw it out into very small hairs or threads, then holding the ends of these threads in the flame till they melt and run into a small round globule or drop, which will hang at the end of the thread, and if further you stick several of these upon the end of a stick with a little sealing wax, so as that the threads stand upwards, and then on a whetstone first grind off a good part of them, and afterward on a smooth metal plate with a little tripoli, rub them till they come to be very smooth. If one of these be fixed with a little soft wax against a small needle hole pricked through a thin plate of brass, lead, pewter, or any other metal, and an object placed very near be looked at through it, it will both magnify and make some objects more distinct than any of the great microscopes. But because these, though exceeding easy made, are yet very troublesome to be used, because of their smallness and the nearness of the object, therefore to prevent both these and yet have only two refractions, I provided me a tube of brass, shaped much like that in the fourth figure of the first scheme. Into the smaller end of this I fixed with wax a good plano convex object glass, with the convex side towards the object, and into the bigger end I fixed also with wax a pretty large plano convex glass, with the convex side towards my eye. Then by means of the small hole by the side I filled the intermediate space between these two glasses with very clear water, and with a screw stopped it in, and then putting on a cell for the eye, I could perceive an object more bright than I could when the intermediate space was only filled with air but this, for other inconveniences, I made but little use of. My way of fixing both the glass and object to the pedestal most conveniently was thus. Upon one side of a round pedestal A-B in the sixth figure of the first scheme was fixed a small pillar, C-C. On this was fitted a small iron arm, D, which could be moved up and down and fixed in any part of the pillar by means of a small screw, E. On the end of this arm was a small ball fitted into a kind of socket F, made in the side of the brass ring G, through which the small end of the tube was screwed, by means of which contrivance I could place and fix the tube in what posture I desired, which for many observations was exceeding necessary, and adjusting it most exactly to any object. For placing the object I made this contrivance. Upon the end of a small brass link or staple HH, I so fastened a round plate, I-I, that it might be turned round upon its center K, and going pretty stiff would stand fixed in any posture it was set. On the side of this was fixed a small pillar P, about three-quarters of an inch high, 
and through the top of this was thrust a small iron pin M, whose top just stood over the center of the plate. On this top I fixed a small object, and by means of these contrivances I was able to turn it into all kinds of positions, both to my eye and the light for by moving round the small plate on its center could move it one way, and by turning the pin M I could move it another way, and this without stirring the glass at all or at least but very little. The plate likewise I could move to and fro to any part of the pedestal, which in many cases was very convenient, and fix it also in any position by means of a nut N, which was screwed on upon the lower part of the pillar CC. All the other contrivances are obvious enough from the draft, and will need no description. Now though this were the instrument I made most use of, yet I have made several other trials with other kinds of microscopes, which both for matter and form were very different from common spherical glasses. I have made a microscope with one piece of glass, both whose surfaces were planes. I have made another only with a plano concave without any kind of reflection, divers also by means of reflection. I have made others of water, gums, rosins, salts, arsenic, oils, and with divers other mixtures of watery and oily liquors. And indeed the subject is capable of a great variety, but I find generally none more useful than that which is made with two glasses such as I have already described. What the things are, I observe, the following descriptions will manifest. In brief, they were either exceeding small bodies or exceeding small pores, or exceeding small motions some of each of which the reader will find in the following notes, and such as I presume, many of them at least, will be new and perhaps not less strange. Some specimen of each of which heads the reader will find in the subsequent delineations, and indeed of some more than I was willing there should be, which was occasioned by my first intentions to print a much greater number than I have since found time to complete. Of such therefore as I had, I selected only some few of every head, which for some particulars seem most observable, rejecting the rest as superfluous to the present design. What each of the delineated subjects are the following descriptions annexed to each will inform, of which I shall here only once for all add that in divers of them the gravers have pretty well followed my directions and drafts, and that in making of them I endeavoured, as far as I was able, first to discover the true appearance, and next to make a plain representation of it. This I mention the rather because of these kind of objects there is much more difficulty to discover the true shape than of those visible to the naked eye, the same object seeming quite differing in one position to the light from what it really is, and may be discovered in another. And therefore I never began to make any draft before by many examinations in several lights, and in several positions to those lights I had discovered the true form. For it is exceeding difficult in some objects to distinguish between a prominency and a depression, between a shadow and a black stain, or a reflection and a whiteness in the color. Besides, the transparency of most objects renders them yet much more difficult than if they were opacious. The eyes of a fly in one kind of light appear almost like a lattice, drilled through with abundance of small holes, which probably may be the reason why the ingenious Dr. Power seems to suppose them such. In the sunshine they look like a surface covered with golden nails, in another posture like a surface covered with pyramids, in another with cones, and in other postures of quite other shapes. That which exhibits the best is the light collected on the object by those means I have already described. And this was undertaken in prosecution of the design which the Royal Society has proposed to itself. 
for the members of the assembly having before their eyes so many fatal instances of the errors and falsehoods in which the greatest part of mankind has so long wandered because they relied upon the strength of human reason alone have begun anew to correct all hypotheses by sense as seamen do their dead reckonings by celestial observations and to this purpose it has been their principal endeavor to enlarge and strengthen the senses by medicine and by such outward instruments as are proper for their particular works by this means they find some reason to suspect that those efforts of bodies which have been commonly attributed to qualities and those confessed to be occult are performed by the small machines of nature which are not to be discerned without these helps seeming the mere products of motion figure and magnitude and that the natural textures which some call the plastic faculty may be made in looms which a greater perfection of optics may make discernible by these glasses so as now they are no more puzzled about them than the vulgar are to conceive how tapestry or flowered stuffs are woven and the ends of all these inquiries they intend to be the pleasure of contemplative minds but above all the ease and dispatch of the labors of men's hands they do indeed neglect no opportunity to bring all the rare things of remote countries within the compass of their knowledge and practice but they still acknowledge their most useful informations to arise from common things and from diversifying their most ordinary operations upon them they do not wholly reject experiments of mere light and theory but they principally aim at such whose applications will improve and facilitate the present way of manual arts and though some men who are perhaps taken up about less honorable employments are pleased to censure their proceedings yet they can show more fruits of their first three years wherein they have assembled than any other society in europe can for a much larger space of time tis true such undertakings as theirs do commonly meet with small encouragement because men are generally rather taken with the plausible and discursive than the real and the solid part of philosophy yet by the good fortune of their institution in an age of all others the most inquisitive they have been assisted by the contribution and presence of very many of the chief nobility and gentry and others who are some of the most considerable in their several professions but that that yet farther convinces me of the real esteem that the more serious part of men have of this society is that several merchants men who act in earnest whose object is meum and tuum that great rudder of human affairs have adventured considerable sums of money to put in practice what some of our members have contrived and have continued steadfast in their good opinions of such endeavors when not one of a hundred of the vulgar have believed their undertakings are feasible and it is also fit to be added that they have one advantage peculiar to themselves that very many of their number are men of converse and traffic which is a good omen that their attempts will bring philosophy from words to action seeing the men of business have had so great a share in their first foundation and of this kind i ought not to conceal one particular generosity which more nearly concerns myself it is the munificence of sir john cutler in endowing a lecture for the promotion of mechanic arts to be governed and directed by this society this bounty i mention for the honorableness of the thing itself and for the expectation which i have of the efficacy of the example for it cannot now be objected to them that their designs will be esteemed frivolous and vain when they have such a real testimony of the approbation of a man that is such an eminent ornament of this renowned city and one who by the variety and the happy success of his negotiations has given evident proofs that he is not easy to be deceived this gentleman has well observed that the arts of life have been too long imprisoned in the dark shops of mechanics themselves and there hindered from growth either by ignorance or self-interest 
and he has bravely freed them from these inconveniences. He hath not only obliged tradesmen, but trade itself. He has done a work that is worthy of London, and has taught the chief city of commerce in the world the right way how commerce is to be improved. We have already seen many other great signs of liberality in a large mind from the same hand, for by his diligence about the corporation for the poor, by his honorable subscription for the rebuilding of St. Paul's, by his cheerful disbursement for the replanting of Ireland, and by many other such public works, he has shown by what means he endeavors to establish his memory. And now by this last gift he has done that which became one of the wisest citizens of our nation to accomplish, seeing one of the wisest of our statesmen, the Lord Verulam, first propounded it. But to return to my subject from a digression which I hope my reader will pardon me, seeing the example is so rare that I can make no more such digressions. If these my first labors shall be any ways useful to inquiring men, I must attribute the encouragement and promotion of them to a very reverend and learned person, of whom this ought in justice to be said, that there is scarce any one invention which this nation has produced in our age, but it has some way or other been set forward by his assistance. My reader, I believe, will quickly guess that it is Dr. Wilkins that I mean. He is indeed a man born for the good of mankind and for the honor of his country. In the sweetness of whose behavior, in the calmness of his mind, in the unbounded goodness of his heart, we have an evident instance what the true and the primitive unpassionate religion was before it was soured by particular faction. In a word, his zeal has been so constant and effectual in advancing all good and profitable arts, that as one of the ancient Romans said of Scipio, that he thanked God that he was a Roman, because where Scipio had been born, there had been the seat of an empire of the world. So I may thank God that Dr. Wilkins was an Englishman, for wherever he had lived there had been the chief seat of generous knowledge and true philosophy. To the truth of this there are so many worthy men living that will subscribe that I am confident what I have here said will not be looked upon by any ingenious reader as a panegyric, but only as a real testimony. By the advice of this excellent man I first set upon this enterprise, yet still came to it with much reluctancy, because I was to follow the footsteps of so eminent a person as Dr. Wren, who was the first that attempted anything of this nature, whose original drafts do now make one of the ornaments of that great collection of rarities in the king's closet. This honor which his first beginnings of this kind have received to be admitted into the most famous place of the world did not so much encourage as the hazard of coming after Dr. Wren did affright me. For of him I must affirm that, since the time of Archimedes, there scarce ever met in one man in so great a perfection such a mechanical hand and so philosophical a mind. But at last, being assured both by Dr. Wilkins and Dr. Wren himself, that he had given over his intention of prosecuting it, and not finding that there was any else designed the pursuing of it, I set upon this undertaking, and was not a little encouraged to proceed with it by the honor the Royal Society was pleased to favor me with, in approving of those drafts which, from time to time as I had an opportunity of describing, I presented to them, and particularly by the incitements of divers of those noble and excellent persons of it, which were my more especial friends, who were not less urgent with me for the publishing than for the prosecution of them. After I had almost completed these pictures and observations, having had divers of them engraven and was ready to send them to the press, 
I was informed that the ingenious physician, Dr. Henry Power, had made several microscopical observations which had I not afterwards, upon our interchangeably viewing each other's papers, found that they were for the most part differing from mine, either in the subject itself, or in the particulars taken notice of, and that his design was only to print observations without pictures, I had even then suppressed what I had so far proceeded in. But being further excited by several of my friends in compliance with their opinions, that it would not be unacceptable to several inquisitive men, and hoping also that I should thereby discover something new to the world, I have at length cast in my might into the vast treasury of a philosophical history. And it is my hope, as well as belief, that these my labors will be no more comparable to the production of many other natural philosophers, who are now everywhere busy about greater things, than my little objects are to be compared to the greater and more beautiful works of nature, a flea, a mite, a gnat, to an horse, an elephant, or a lion. End of section two. Recording by Philip Gould.